Hi, I'm Omega from Cult of the Dead Cow. And this is the Death Vegetable, Minister of Propaganda for Cult of the Dead Cow. And you're listening to Firewalls Firewalls Don't Don't Stop Stop Dragons. Dragons. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to Firewalls Don't Stop Dragons. I'm your host, Gary Parker. And today we have episode 336 for August 8th, 2023. By the time you hear this, I will be in sunny Las Vegas, Nevada, going there for Hacker Summer Camp. Uh, I'll start off with B-Sides, maybe slip into Black Hat, we'll see, but uh, really mostly going for DEF CON, DEF CON 31. Super, super psyched. Uh, Cannot wait to get there. It's going to be so fun. And in honor of that, today I have got an interview with two original old school OG hackers from one of the oldest hacking groups on the planet called the Cult of the Dead Cow. And you might be wondering where they got that name. Well, that is one of the questions I will be asking our two guests. We have Omega and we have Death Veggie. And of course, these are their hacker handles. And I will be asking them where they came up with those names. And we're going to reminisce a lot. I wanted to kind of, because these guys go way back uh, with hacking, I wanted to talk about like pre-internet hacking, like way back in the day, back when phone freaking was the thing. And that's P-H-R-E-A-K, freak. That is what you do when you want to make free long distance phone calls, basically. Or in some cases, like free local phone calls from a pay telephone booth, which nobody sees anymore. If you're, if you're not old enough, you probably don't even know what the heck that is. It was a very, very different time back then. And before we had ubiquitous broadband... Uh, Even before we had internet, the way you interacted with people using computers and long-distance communications was very different. So we're going to reminisce a lot about that and have some fun talking about what it was like growing up in that environment, what some of the hacker groups were like and how they interacted with each other, because there's all sorts of stories about, you know, hacker wars and, and, and things like that that were kind of blown out of proportion. Turns out a lot of these groups actually intermixed a lot. There was a lot of overlap between some of these groups which is to say that the membership wasn't exclusive. A lot of times people were in multiple groups. But the coolest thing for me about the Cult of the Dead Cow, or CDC for short, and I've just read the book by Joseph Mann about the Cult of the Dead Cow, which makes this perfect timing, is that the CDC guys were really about the free flow of information, anti-censorship, and into hacktivism. In fact, they coined the term hacktivism. So we're going to be talking about that today as well. And I'll ask them, you know, what is it that makes somebody a hacker? Because I firmly believe that we all have some hacking tendencies. And, and I think that the term hacking kind of gets a bad name, but think about things like life hacks, right? I mean, these are things that we do. They're kind of tricks, right? There are ways of figuring out how something works and figuring out a way to do it better. So we're going to get into all that today. We had a really great talk. Uh, just a couple quick lingo things I want to throw out. We're going to talk about BBSs or bulletin board systems. We will actually explain what that is in the show. We mentioned, I think, IRC, Internet Relay Chat. That's that's kind of an early instant messaging kind of a thing. It's still around, by the way. We're going to talk a lot about text files today, especially when references to bulletin boards. And all of this was maybe a precursor to what we're more used to with like Usenet, if you know what that is, or, you know, even web forums today. Now, there is a little bit of cursing in this. And actually, it's because one of the hacker handles actually has a curse word in their name. So be prepared for that. All right, with all that as a precursor, let's get to our really fun interview with Death Veggie and Omega from the Cult of the Dead Cow. Today, we've got a really, really special show for you. Uh, I'm going to be interviewing two members of one of the oldest hacker groups on the planet 
called The Cult of the Dead Cow. And with us is Death Veggie or Death Vegetable, a.k.a. Luke Benfi. Welcome to the show, Luke. Hey, nice to be here. And we also have Omega, a.k.a. Michael or Misha Kubeka. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Appreciate it. Guys, I'm so looking forward to this. This is great. And and with the Hacker Summer Camp coming up, uh, and I've actually just finished reading the book on the Cult of the Dead Cow, which was great. And so it was perfect for perfect timing. We actually uh, we read it as part of our uh, book club for the patrons. And so it's fresh in our minds, and this is really going to be a lot of fun. So for my audience's sake, who probably has no idea, I, I mentioned <laughs> I mentioned to my mom earlier today that I was going to be interviewing two folks from the Cult of the Dead Cow. And she said, Cult of the Dead Cow? Question mark, question mark, question mark. <laughs> like, what the hell is that? So please, one of you explain, what is the Cult of the Dead Cow? How does it start? And I'd love to know where the name came from. It's okay. the hacking group that made the Kessel run in less than 12 parsecs. <laughs> yeah. There are some people that, that say that, that CDC is, is just the modern incarnation of, of an ancient Gnostic order that, with its roots in ancient Egypt, with worship of Hathor, the cow goddess. Others might tell you that CDC has always been and will always be a sort of universal constant, if you will. Um, however, those people are all wrong. <laughs> CDC got its start in 1984 in Lubbock, Texas, a group of sort of like punk kids who were, you know, were maybe like, I'd say probably about 12, 13 at that point. Oh, wow. Um, and, you know, they were sort of social outcasts, skaters, kind of, you know, people who didn't really fit in with this sort of not rural Texas, but agricultural Texas sort of environment. And, you know, the truth is what you got to say, because they used to hang out at an abandoned slaughterhouse. <laughs> and so, um, you know, that was their, that was their, their, their place. So they, they started referring to themselves as the cult of the dead cow. And then that kind of, uh, translated into once they, you know, one of them set up a BBS and they started, you know, had a online community that was then sort of translated into the, the, the wider world as people outside of their friend group in, in Lubbock, you know, got involved and things like that. So I, I think I would add that, you know, uh, CDC has a lot of amazing firsts. We invented the, the hackerspace um, loft in New Hack City. We invented the modern security conference, HoHoCon. Um, we're the first gender integrated hacking group, the first hacking group to have its own Usenet news group. Um, mm -hmm. if people in your audience mm -hmm. uh, still know, know what Usenet is, <laughs> right. um, we coined the term hacktivism. C CDC produced the first hacker congressman, the first member of Congress who is a former hacker and the first hacker presidential candidate. But so, you know, we're, we're known for a lot of firsts, but, but probably three things that people know us about. One is, um, electronic publishing and distribution of over 450 text files. Uh, mostly in the, the pre-internet of the 80s and the 90s. Secondarily, Backwarfus and BO2K and hacktivism. Um, so, you know, C CDC is considered a, a hacking group today, but, but we didn't really start out that way. We started out as a group that, that wrote seven bit ASCII text files. Um, you know, Joe Men famously called us the liberal arts wing of the computer hacker underground. <laughs> and in, in many ways, we still are. I know that, uh, you know, that was a... <laughs> For a while, we were sort of collecting quotes by people about CDC, um, and and one of my favorite ones was Bruce Sterling, who called us the. What is he, I think he referred to us as the termites in the in the foundation of the status quo, hmm. and I think it, I'm trying to. Someone else was it uh, Gilmore? Maybe it was Gilmore that that 
called us <laughs> said that we were like the smartest kids on the on the short bus to school <laughs> which, <laughs> which i i just find that really amusing <laughs> So were you guys, I mean, at what point were you getting into computer stuff? Did the, did the cult of dead cow, I mean, at that point of the creation of the, of the group, were you actually, you know, hacking around at that time or did that come later? So, so this predates either of us being in CDC. Right, I, sure. I, I was, indu- I was inducted in 1990 and I think Omega 91 probably. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it, it had already been a going concern for six mm-hmm. years by the time I joined, but I was certainly aware of it from when I was first sort of online. Uh, and by online, in this case, I mean using a modem to call BBSs. Right. <laughs> and so I think it was one of these things where when it originally started out, it was just these three guys founded by three guys in Lubbock, three kids. And then, you know, their friends started calling from from in Lubbock. And then, you know, it kind of spread out wider. They started publishing text files and that's how it originally got sort of uh, low f you know small f famous famous in a in a a very small subset of society um because text files would go everywhere you know it was it was a a format that was would be spread around to other bbs's all over the world and so people would learn about it and say oh what is this cult of the dead cow i need to i need to find out more of it and i'm gonna oh maybe there's some phone numbers of their bbs's on this text file i'm gonna call these phone numbers and and uh that's how i first called cdc bbs's and certainly how i first learned about cdc's existence was through text files and omega i think i think you said the same Uh you know same Uh thing it's you know one of these things i became aware of its existence far, you know, long before I actually spoke to or, you know, con- had any conversation even on a BBS with somebody who was part of it. Yeah. I, I you know, t- text files were sort of the, the currency of the realm, especially in the, in mm. the computer underground. You would use uh, it to, sh- I was, I, I was just going to say that, you know, we'd use it to, to share information because there was no, I, there was none, you know, certainly no web chat there was no irc or even um you know a little bit later there were some things you know sort of proto ir not proto irc but pre-irc chat things on on telenet and timenet but that's not how people were were disseminating information it was being done on mostly on bbs's you know to a lesser extent sometimes people would meet up in person um later on there would be uh teleconferences especially using uh-huh. uh hacked uh phone <laughs> phone cards yeah yeah which is actually that's the way I got invited to join CDC originally is that I had been you know I was on these BBSs and I you know was a fan certainly but um I started setting up these alliance teleconferences for CDC members to to talk to each other and uh, it didn't take long for them after that to to kind of you know invite me in as a member which obviously I was very very flattered you um, had the codes yeah I had the codes codes man it's like being invited to join the beatles but you know mhm mhm all right, so you, you've talked about BBS as a tech file. So let's get into this a little bit. So first of all, BBS is short for Bulletin Board Systems. Uh, and this is pre-internet. This is before the World Wide Web. This is before AOL disks were showing up in your mailbox. Mm-hmm. This was pre-web. And so for you guys to to talk back in the day, and I'm <laughs> we talked about this a little before the show, uh, I, I'm just bummed that for as much as I was into this kind of you know computers a little bit at the time and things, I, I totally missed out on this. I just did not. I was not part of the the whole BBS scene, and it just bums that I, that I missed that. But so we're we're talking about phone calls to dedicated computers, 
Uh, well, you know what? You guys could explain it better than me. Explain to the audience, what is VBS? How did it function? Like when you wanted to communicate, what did you do? And what were these text files that you that you speak of? Yeah. So, uh, you know, BBS is is uh, a computer bulletin board, right? And the only way you you could get to it was by, you know, uh, having a modem, right? So a modem tr- uh, translates between digital data and, and analog data, right? So that, it, so that you can connect, uh, transmit over a telephone line, right? So frequently it would be the case where, you know, you're, you're, a, you're a hobbyist and you want, you know, you want people to visit this computer bulletin board that you've set up, right? So you would, you would run it on a dedicated computer in your bedroom with a phone line plugged into a modem connected to your computer. And, you know, just like, just like ordinary landlines, you can only receive one call at a time, right? right. So I think a kind of an analogy for today is, you know, imagine Reddit, right? So there's many subreddits. You can find a subreddit that interests you and, you know, it can read posts from other people. But imagine that only one person could read or write on Reddit at a time, right? And so, like, if they have their browser open and they're on Reddit, nobody else could could be on Reddit, right, until they close the browser window. And then somebody else could get on Reddit and start reading or posting, right? So that's kind of what the, the BBS experience was, right? There was only, generally, BBS only had one phone line, so it could only have one user on at one time. And if that person was on for hours and hours, you had to redial over and over and over until you could get in, right? And just to go back to text files for a minute, you know, text text files are really, you know, they're they're about telling stories to others in 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 our community. In this case, the the computer underground. And the only way you could read these text files was if you had a computer, a modem, and you knew the right telephone number to dial, right? Because a particular you know a text file that you might want to read, or a group uh, that was writing text files that interested you. They, these were published on a particular BBS. You couldn't just dial any BBS and read Cult of the Dead Cow text files, right? You'd have to dial a BBS that was run by the Cult of the Dead Cow or somebody who was a fan of the Cult of the Dead Cow downloaded all the text files from a CDC hmm. BBS and put them up on, on their BBS, right? We actually had a, you know, a network of that. It was called the K-Cow Force, mm-hmm. where it was like to be a, you know, to be a, join the K-Cow Force, essentially, you were saying, I, I have a BBS and I am going to distribute every new text file that comes out of CDC. And that was something that I don't think anybody else had done. Um, we and to some to extent, yeah, exactly. And I, and I think it, that sort of started to, to spread the, you know, spread notoriety. But uh, I, one other thing I wanted to mention uh, as far as like, oh, there's only one person that can use a BBS at the time, at a time, is also uh, there is a live chat function, but it's just you trying to talk to the sysop, the guy who's running it. Maybe he's there, maybe he's right. not. But it was, you know, the other thing about it, it the idea of it being a dedicated dedicated computer and or dedicated phone line is that especially back then you got to remember the the kids are like 12 13 14 and so if you look at old text files you know saying hey call my bbs a lot you know they will make a point of saying like we're 24 hours a day (laughs) or or maybe they're not 24 hours a day maybe they're they're not maybe they're only open from 8 p.m to 8 a.m or whatever because it's like otherwise you know mom's got to use the phone or whatever i remember actually drunk fucks cdc member drunk fucks he had a you know, it was a satirical or a joke advertisement for his BBS, but it, it was like online from 3 p.m. when we get home to 5 p.m. when moms get home. <laughs> right. Like, yeah. Well, and, but, I mean, uh, 
we're, I think we're of an age. Back when I was a kid, we actually, at my house, not only do we have just one phone line, because most people only could afford one or only would only pay for one. There was one line for the house. Yeah. And, and we actually, at some point, had a party line. So it was, Ooh. it was shared with other people's houses, you know, that, so that you couldn't even make a call when you wanted to. So that, that could have potentially been part of the reason I was not part of this thing. Or call waiting. <laughs> oh, sure. They don't call waiting. There's no caller ID. Um, and, you know, modems, you know, if you're of a certain age, you might think, oh, modems. Yeah, that's that little maybe the card you bought that, that goes in your PC. And I'm like, no, no, no. The, the original modems were taking the AT&T standard Bakelite handset into a acoustically coupled suction cup thing, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. that, <laughs> that where you guys. Them, we used to call them earmuff, earmuff modems. Right, right. Yeah, what? Well, um, and another thing to, to keep in mind is that modems were not cheap. I mean, like, you know, I don't know about Misha, but I had one because my dad worked in the tech industry and he would bring, mm. we, that's the same way we had computers at home is, um, I mean, past, you know, once we got past the original ones, we talked a little bit about like the TI 99 4A and, and the Coleco Atom and things like that. But I know that when we brought, he brought back the first sort of like PC, essentially, um, it was something that he'd gotten from work. Um, and same with same with the modem, and it was this this would have been for me nineteen eighty for the modem it was eighty six, and I, I actually I don't remember how I found the the first BBS I ever called, but I do know that the first, my introduction to sort of the the computer underground, if you will, was like going to visit my cousins in California. We I grew up in sort of a, a rural area outside of Boston, but uh. Um, we'd gone to California to visit my cousins, and I remember getting this floppy disk from them. And this floppy disk was full of text files that, at that point, were a couple years old, so they were probably you know early early to mid eighties. Um, and it was just like this boom. There's this whole world out here that I had no idea about, but like these are these are interesting people that I feel like I fit in with in a way that I do not fit in with the jocks and mm. and what at at my school and and. It was very much this sort of epiphany that there is an entire community of people like me out there mm-hmm. that, ha- you know, that, that I feel like I would fit in with. It's, you know, my grandmother used to have the expression <laughs> that she, well, she used on me and my friends, but she called us smarty weirdos. <laughs> and so it's like, that's, that's, those are my people, man, the smarty weirdos. And uh, they, they always have been. Yeah. I, you know, something I would point out about text files is that, Besides CDC, most text files were nonfiction, right? The, the you know, m- the, the, the yeah. m- most of the text files that you found were often about hacking or, or freaking or something, right? And th- in, in fact, this, this was how you made your reputa- reputation as an elite hacker, right? You figured something out mm-hmm. or you, you know, synthesized something from something else you read and you wrote your own text file about it describing, you know, how, how to do a particular thing, right? And, you know, and slapped your, your handle on it, your, your pseudonym on it, right? And maybe, maybe at the bottom you put a footer about, you know, the BBSs where you could download more, more files from me, the writer, right? So, you know, the majority of these kinds of text files that, that we would read about, again, were, they're, they're very technical. They're about, you know, they're, they're about hacking and, and they're written by hackers. But the founders of CDC were not elite hackers. They were, as Luke said, they were just a bunch of teenagers living in a dead end cow town in Texas who, who wanted to be heard, I think. Mm. And, you know, the, I think the original members in particular, they liked to poke fun at themselves and also the computer mm. underground elite, right? So mm. a lot of the early CDC text files are, 
you know, parodies and they're parodies in one way or another of, of a, of a, of a, you know, some, some, some technical kind of file. I mean, CDC published a text file on how to build a gerbil feed bomb, um, which is both silly and, and hilarious, uh, you know, how that would even work. Uh, you know, and, and they, again, they, you know, they wanted to be heard. They wanted to publish something. They, they're not elite hackers. What do they do? You know, they're, they're publishing Metallica lyrics. They're, you know, um, publishing these, these parody text files, right? And, and, the, the, you know, their text files were, you know, irreverent and sarcastic and, and, you know, th- th- that spoke to my sense of, of humor. So I had a, you know, when I first encountered CDC's text files, I had a kind of a, an experience like Luke did where it was like, Hey, these are, these are my people, right? You know, these people are writing fiction or they're writing things that are, they're totally not about technical stuff. Although that's really interesting. I like, I like collecting those files and reading those too, but this is something that's completely different and it speaks to me, you know, and, 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 you know, since from the beginning, CDC has specialized in irony and hyperbole and, and just this sort of irreverent, sarcastic sense of humor. And, you know, we kind of infuse everything we do with that, not just the things that we write. Um, yeah. Yeah. I think it, that's an important differentiator. I know that, that you, you'd at, you kind of mentioned talking about this later on, but a, a differentiator for CDC versus a lot of these other groups is that from the very beginning, we never took ourselves too seriously. And we never took like that, you know, the hacker scene that seriously. And I think I, I speaking for myself, I definitely have a personally have a gut reaction against people who I, I think are taking themselves too seriously, or, or I, I find, you know, arrogant and things like that. So and I've always been that way. And I think that that as Misha says, that really spoke to me and attracted me. But it's it's also, I think, in the long run, I, you know, I, I I forget who it was, whether maybe it was, uh, yeah, I don't remember who who it was. Some some journalist who referred to us as the the clown princes of the hacker underground, mm-hmm. and I think it, that can that can seem like it's a sort of derogatory or or you know a diminutive pejorative, uh, it, could, pejorative it, seem, it could seem like it's a pejorative term but i don't think it was and i i think in the long term we found that that it uh it has not proven to be i i think that part of why cdc has been so successful in terms of being around for a long time and attracting people who are, are the right fit for it yeah is because we don't take ourselves too seriously and that speaks to people yeah i mean to, to this day writing a text file is a requirement of membership in cdc you have to be able to yeah. write something that's compelling and interesting yeah i'm you know i just i just remembered um so michael hoy was the uh, publisher of loom panics unlimited which was a uh, an actual press that that put out kind of underground books if you will he had a great quote it, it was like if it's illegal, immoral, or revolting, CDC has a file about it and possibly three of them. Um, <laughs> yeah. You know, and, and th- that, that's us. Yeah. There was an element, you know, yeah, we were writing things that, you know, to be funny or writing things to get the voice out there. But there was also, like, especially, you know, very early on, there was this, a culture of, like, just trying to be outrageous. And, and things, you know, files like Sex with Satan or Bunny Lust <laughs> and, like, things that are just kind of this over-the-top expression because again teenage boys (laughs) right Um, right and you know it's 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 kind of the sort of thing that that nowadays we'd call edgelording except it wasn't mean i don't like i Mm. i never got the feeling that that we were being mean or cruel 
or I mean, certainly we said and did things that I would not say and do now, you know, through the, the lens of, you know, being 35 years older, mm. but, but I don't think we were ever aiming to be, it wasn't, there was never hate in our hearts and it, we never even pretended to be, mm-hmm. uh, you know, we were, we were never even being ironically cruel. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, and I remember I was uh, when I interviewed Jeff Moss a, little, uh, a couple of years ago, and he was talking about uh, LOD and MOD and some of the early groups. Uh, I believe those are, are all gone at this point, right? Uh, Loft, some of the guys are still around. And so you, you mentioned it. So what differentiated you between those guys, and maybe how are you same? I know there was a lot of overlap in some of these groups, but I, the reason I brought up Jeff was he said that like there's there's a big feud between M- Masters of Deceptions and Lord of uh, Legion of Doom. Mm-hmm. Was there was there a lot of infighting? What was there a competition? How, what was the dynamic between the groups? And are any of them still around? I, think I mean, certainly the people are still around. Sure, right? sure, sure, sure. Yeah, yeah. And I don't, you know, I don't think that they hate each other anymore. Except with the, there are some exceptions where people are like, "This person sent me to jail, sent me to prison." So <laughs> that'll do you it. Know, screw that guy. Yeah. Which I'm like, <laughs> okay, you know, fair enough. But by and large, you know, it's one of these things where. A lot of time has passed, and in hindsight, so many of these things that were squabbles, like from an through an adult lens, is like it was meaningless. It doesn't, right. you know, it totally doesn't matter. I, I also think that, yeah, you know, that this was sort of ginned up as like the whole the hacker war, mm-hmm. uh, you know, the hacker wars of the early '90s with LOD versus MOD, uh-huh. but it was really never that big a thing. It was people playing pranks on each other, basically. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, some of those pranks were good, like turning somebody's home phone into a pay phone. Pay phone yeah. <laughs> so that when, when they tried to make a phone call, it would be like, please deposit 25 cents. Yeah. <laughs> like, well, this is my phone at home. Because um, that's the kind of stuff you can do if you sure. have access to the phone company's yeah. systems. You, you, you change the class yeah. of service on the home phone. Yeah. 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 It's just a toggle. That was a big part of the hacking back in the day because – and I'm sure some of that was the fact that because these were phone numbers and because a lot of these phone numbers were not local, you had to make long-distance calls. And for those of us oh, yeah. old enough to remember, long-distance calls used to cost money, like a lot of money. Oh, yeah. And, and mean, so, you know, phone freaking, uh, PH freaking, you know, getting around that stuff was a big deal and Captain Crunch and, you know, that was a whole big part of the scene, oh, right? Oh, man, that guy. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. It, de- it definitely was. And I mean, again, that's even before um, I got involved – with following the CDC, like the way that I got involved with hacking and freaking was I, you know, I, first of all, it was like a social thing. Like I'm calling these VBSs. This is interesting. I'm talking to people from all over, even in other countries or whatever. And then I, you know, I talk about a little bit about this in Joe Men's book, but there was the day that um, my parents got a $600 phone bill <laughs> and, you know, they sat me down and were like, this will not happen again. <laughs> And I was like, okay, well, I'm not going to stop calling these places. Right. So, how do I do it for free? <laughs> and, yeah, yeah um, I think, and I think it, that that's a story that is kind of. Yeah, I don't think I'm alone in that sort of uh, uh, scenario. Yeah, learning to freak was was uh, a necessity in, in a lot of ways, and and I, I want to point out that long distance phone calls were very expensive back then. Very um, expensive, the, the, you know, the people who. People who are growing up now, you know, millennials, Gen Z, you know, phone calls are much free. less expensive and or or free in some cases, but they cost dollars per minute to make phone calls yeah. back then, right? And so, you know, you live in a, you know, I lived in a small town. Um, I didn't live in a big metro area, and you know, the only there were a couple BBSs, you know, maybe a half a dozen BBSs in my in my local area. There was only one ha- underground BBS, and that was because I ran it. <laughs> there, there were no other ones, right? So if, you know, and, and if, if you wanted to get, again, if you wanted to get 
content, get, get text files written by other hackers, learn other things, interact with other people who were interesting in doing those things, you had to make long distance phone calls because all the interesting stuff was always happening in somebody else's area code, right? It was Whatever area code you were in was usually not very interesting. You had to make those calls. I think, you know, I, I've never thought of it this way, but it sort of was like this area code lottery where it's like if you happen to live in a, mm-hmm. in a place that had this sort of stuff going on, you are much more likely to get involved. And that's why you get these sort of nexuses of nexi, nexuses, <laughs> anyway, uh, of areas where there was a hacker scene. Two so like two, Boston had amazing one. There was one in New York, the MOD guys, that was a big place they came out of. Chicago had a big one. Obviously the Bay area was a, mm-hmm. was a huge one. And, and I'm not being, you know, exhaustive. There were other, absolutely other ways, other places as well. But, but, that's how you get things like all these people that came out of Boston, like um, all the CDC people, the loft folks, and and there were LOD people there, et cetera, or, you know, the Bay Area. Even before CDC, there was a group called Anarchy Inc., which was one of the ones that actually influenced CDC early on. But, uh, yeah, I mean, it was it was a kind of a luck of the draw of where you happen to live. Sure, and also, yeah. I mean, and obvious, you know, this is something that didn't occur to us back then, but there's also an inherently exclusionary aspect to this in yes. that it's not just living in the right place. It's like having a computer and a mm-hmm. modem mm-hmm. and who has computers and modems is overwhelming, overwhelmingly going to be, you know, well off generally white folks, mm. especially back then boys specifically. Mm. And so it's, you know, it, it, we need to recognize that it was not like a true, crosscut of society the way that in a lot of ways it is now you know it was a bunch of you know middle class and, and upper class white boys basically who were the ones that were sure. uh, had the privilege to be able to to even know about this this uh, uh community this stuff going on and sure yeah yeah so that, i hadn't really thought about yeah. that way yeah but yeah i totally get that yeah looking back what i'm curious like what like what was the first time that you introduced yourself as a hacker? Do you do you have a memory of like when you like made that conscious decision and someone asked you and, and maybe you introduced yourself with your hacker handle instead of your name? Like in was person, there a trend? Yeah, in person. Like online, obviously that's probably what you were, but like yeah. it, it, in person, like this was like it, IRL. <laughs> when yeah. when did you kind of commit to that thing? So. You know, nowadays, well, I don't know, I think I guess they still do them, but the, certainly in the 90s, there was the idea of, of 2600 meetings. So 2600 mm-hmm, Magazine, mm-hmm. which is a hacker and phone freaker magazine that's been, like, also been around since 1984. Yeah, still around, yeah. Uh, yeah. They would have, in various cities, they'd publish in the back. It's like first Friday of the month, everybody meets here or there. But even before that, in Boston, the Works BBS, which was a BBS that I was a co-sys up on and that I met omega on for the first time mm-hmm. we would have what we called works gatherings and so we'd go all you know we'd be like hey this friday we're gonna go hang out at the pizza place in harvard square and i i would i would bet you money that that would be the first place that i ever first mm-hmm. introduced myself as death veggie in a scenario like that meeting people that that that's how i knew them on you know online on the bbs is is so you introduce yourself as your handle because otherwise if I go up and say, Hey, I'm Luke, they're like, who, who the hell are you? Everything. <laughs> sure. Yeah. I, th- I think, I think it could be the same in, in my case. So I, you know, I, I don't know if Luke did, but I, I had multiple handles depending on what <laughs> okay. I was doing. Right. And so I had a, a BBS handle that had nothing to do with hacking and I used it when I called BBSs that were not part of the computer underground. What was and, that handle? And, 
Uh, <laughs> <laughs> now it can be told. It's it's uh, th- these these handles are too embarrassing to get into. But in, in any case, <laughs> um, so you know, I had introduced myself with with some of those handles before. But I think the first time I introduced myself to in real life as Omega was probably at one of these works gatherings. Yeah, yeah. Or even before the works gatherings, I remember going over to Jason Scott's. So, so yes. the, the works BBS. Some of your some of your listeners may know Jason Scott, who from the Internet Archive and who runs textfiles.com. So the original incarnation of the works was was created by Jason Scott in in I guess eighty six or so in New York, maybe eighty eight. But uh, he uh, eighty six eighty eight. But he, you know, we were sort of these teenagers, and and he was in Boston in college because he was, you know, two or three years older than us. And he would have people over to his, his apartment to like hang out. And, and, you know, that's how I first met. I think anybody that I, I knew in what would now be the hacker scene is, is going and hanging out at Jason Scott's place. Yeah. Uh, I, I have a, I have a, a, a very vivid memory of that. I think that was the first time I met you, Luke. Yeah. I think White so. Knight and possibly Brian Oblivion. I think yeah, Iskra so we, also. Oh, in Iskra, yeah. So we, we went to yeah Jason Scott's apartment on, yep. on Beacon Beacon Street in Boston, and I introduced myself to White Knight as Omega, and he introduced himself as White Knight, and we started talking. We realized that we knew each other by reputation. Hmm. So he's like, "Are you the Omega who does this <laughs> and this? Who calls that board? Yes. Are you the White Knight who's on um, <laughs> on this BBS? Uh, yes." Um, and so that that was kind of weird realizing that that. You know, not expecting to actually know this person that I was just introduced to, but then realizing that we knew something about each other, right? We had we had probably we had crossed paths without and and never never expecting that we would meet in person, and here we were talking. It's funny you you touched on something though there that that's relevant for handles is the discussion of like, oh, are you the Omega that does this? Are you the White Knight that does that? Because um, there, there was there no re- national registry for handle names. No, exactly. And so you'd have like, oh, I'm I'm White Knight six one seven. That guy's White Knight three zero three, or what have you. <laughs> Which but were area also, codes, I assume. Exactly area codes. Yeah, but that's how I ended up with a <laughs> dumb name like the Death Vegetable. Is that I saw like all these people that I called them the D and D handles. Like everybody would pick a you know a pick a name that was, and it was just sort of this generic either sci fi or swords and and sorcery kind of thing. And I was like, well, I want a name that nobody else is ever going to pick. So I will be the Death Vegetable. And you know, the, did it work out? I, it did. It did. Well, actually, what's weird is now there are other people who I I mean that have called themselves that. I assume after you know encountering me online or whatever <laughs> but it's very strange if you search for the death vegetable like if you google it there are people in there that are not me <laughs> and, um but uh, another cdc member tweety fish had exactly the same story it was like i want a name that nobody's gonna pick and so he was tweety fish yeah you know in our cases we were often 13 or 14 year olds trying sure. on new identities to see which one sure. so you you yeah, as a 13 or 14 year old you know you pick something menacing like the death vegetable um, <laughs> right. you know or mysterious like omega and and you know sometimes you just get stuck with it you know so uh, you know as an example um dildog is another cdc member his handle is a combination of dilbert and dogbert oh um, okay it was just a temporary handle he picked on a lark <laughs> Sure. Um, but after a while, he, he, and this reputation built up around his handle because he was writing text files about it or doing things about it, right? And Dildog is the one who did this. Dildog is the one who yeah. wrote that, right? And after a while, this, you know, this reputation had built up. He, he couldn't walk away from it, right? So 
you know, to this day, he's still Dildog, even though I'm, I'm, I'm sure he wishes he had some other handle. So Luke, was, was the spelling of death for Death Veggie, was that a, was that a call out to Megadeth? Because it's not it D-E-A-T-H. absolutely was. Well All done. Right. You're, you're one of the, the only people who's ever recognized that. Yeah, I mean, I was a, a metal, metalhead, sort of oh, headbanger yeah. punk kid. And so, you know, I remember I had a, a big Megadeth poster on my wall and <laughs> I was like, oh yeah, the Death Vegetable. Uh, homage. One thing I wanted to mention, you talking about, because uh, you were talking about Dildog, is a, a an anecdote about Mudge. Is that oh, sure. uh, Mudge's handle was just a friend of his last name. <laughs> like he had a friend whose last name was Mudge. Really? And, so, and the the other good story about that is that that also was not his first his first handle. He used to go by the Time Lord. Yes. And there's a funny story about like the first time we ever met Mudge in person at, at a works gathering. He was like, you know, was like, oh yeah, I'm Mudge. And we asked him, I was like, oh, you ever ever had any other handles? And he's like, oh, yeah, I used to go by the Time Lord. And I remember Iskra, like, thinking about it for a second, he's like, Time Lord, like, you cracked Ultima 2 for the Apple 2, <laughs> Ultima 1 for the Apple 2. And Mudge was like, yeah, yeah, well, actually, my dad did, but, <laughs> but I put my name on it. Classic. Cracking cracking was another form of, of hacking. In this case, it was oh, yeah. um, deep, deep protecting software, right? So, so back then, copies. software came with, with DRM. It came with copy protection in order to keep you from, from copying, it, copying it. But Don't copy that know, floppy. A, a lot of us spent time, you know, not just hacking computers or freaking, but also deep protecting Pirating. software, right? And, and so that you could pirate it. I did a lot of that, yeah. There was the whole the whole story of like, you know, even before we were thinking of it as hacking as such, you know, BBS would be known for two things, wares, W-A-R-Z or, or you know, pirated software and codes, K-O or K-0-D-E-Z, which was hacked phone card numbers mm-hmm. or and things like that. And then, you know, you could use those. I, I think that sort of they were not these things were not separate from actually hacking into computers but you also got to remember that in the days before the internet hacking into computers meant literally doing what they did in war games you know calling every single phone number in a in a prefix and seeing which one's computers answer list answer to mm-hmm. and then calling and then calling them up and trying to break into them and there was and a name for that what 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 war dialing yes war dialing named after after war games it's one of the it's one of the two things that i can think of in the movie war games that actually were real things that what was re- the other realistic? The other one is when he is stops. He's like stranded out in the middle of nowhere and he finds a payphone. Mm-hmm. Yes. And he goes and he screws the, the unscrews the microphone, the mouthpiece off and grounds it to the phone. And he's able to make a free phone call. And that absolutely worked. I used to use it with a, um, I would just take a, I'd unbend a paperclip and you, I'd, poke it into the, the the center hole of the mouse mouthpiece and then you ground it against the, uh, the phone and and for whatever it would do it basically allow you to make a free local phone call um, huh. and so before red boxes that mm-hmm. was the you know you could make a free local phone call and that's where 2600 got its name for the 2600 frequency the 260 uh, 2600 hertz that was the tone for making long distance calls that would that made for blue boxes yeah 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 i i came in just after like blue boxes i didn't really work in the us anymore by the time you know cuz i i got my start sort of like 88 87 that kind of period and they were they had already switched to electronic switching in this country but in other countries uh, i think i pointed you at the unauthorized access mm-hmm. documentary and i if I recall correctly, there's a, a piece where she's visiting somebody in a country where they're still, where you can still use those, and he demonstrates how it works. Crossbar. Yeah. Um, yeah. There yeah. was, there were yeah. still, there were still um, 
old non-ESS5 switches yeah, in, different, yeah, in, different in different parts, parts of the, the country. US. It, it, it took AT&T like years and years to roll out the the new electronic switching system. I mean, so th- gotta, there were places where you could still where you could still do yeah. the kind of old school blue box um, freaking. I think p- people might not necessarily realize that when we talk about oh they were upgrading their systems, this is not a software patch. It is a <sighs> building full of mechanical devices, right? Like like literally a giant eight or ten story building that mm-hmm. is full of these walls and walls of of analog. Ele- analog switches electrical switches that mm-hmm. are then being replaced with rack mounted electronic switches All right stronger switches like we we uh I, I was in telecommunications for my life so as when i was at nortel they took it they did a little history of the telecom stuff we got to see some of those old that old that old type of equipment it was really amazing it's great to watch i mean there's there's videos of youtubes like it is physically you know moving and switching go ka-chunk, ka-chunk. it's a oh. uh, you know stuff is fascinating yeah it's steampunk seeming now, like right, you know, right. Yeah. <laughs> All right, so uh, no, I want to take you back again. I would, uh, back as you're going through this phase, was there as you were growing up? Like, how did you tell your parents and or friends about this stuff? Was what was the kind of the vibe of saying you were a hacker? Was it kind of a closeted thing? Like you had to come out at some point and say, "Yes, I'm a hacker." And then, what do you? How do you think the the perception of hackers and hacking has changed since since you were kids? Well, for me, it was definitely like a sort of closeted thing at first. I might, you know, I definitely didn't share that with my parents. I think, you know, they kind of figured stuff. Something, you know, certainly that something was going on when I'd be up all night on the on the computer because that's when nobody would call and knock right. me offline or what have you. But, I, you know, I can't remember how it first, you know, if there was a moment where I was like, "Mom, Dad, I'm a hacker" or anything like that. But. Yeah, I don't. I don't know. I've never asked them about that. Like when they kind of figured it out, or 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 what. But that's that's kind of you know. I should maybe I should ask them. Um, <laughs> but definitely there was a, a negative stigma uh, attached to it. Then I mean, both from socially and just like oh you're a nerd kind of a thing. Mm. But also there was this idea in in the the popular press and certainly amongst law enforcement that a hacker was necessarily a criminal was right. somebody who is either destroying things or stealing things or breaking things and for the vast majority of us yeah i mean that was that was not our goal and it was essentially yeah. the reason that we were breaking into things was was twofold first cuz we wanted to learn and mm-hmm. and you know as a as a you know a 12 year old kid in in rural massachusetts nobody's going to give you access to a a big and therefore interesting computer system right. so if you want to get it into one you have to break into it and that's how you learn about it but also we were never trying to to break those systems or or delete things because you know, then then they they'd close the door. You wouldn't yeah, be able to use it yeah, anymore. Yeah, it, it, it's um, you might break things accidentally, but, it, but not it's ironic the way you know hackers and hacking was was portrayed in the press back then. Because generally, we, as Luke said, we had a credo, right? That there was such a thing as the hacker ethic. Um, yeah, and there's freedom a, in of fact, information. There's, a, there's mm-hmm. a very famous text file uh, written about it. Um, but but generally. You know, we were there to learn. We were there to explore. We're, you know, doing things in pursuit of knowledge. And it's true that some of that knowledge society considered illicit, but, you know, we were not there to destroy anything. You know, and and contrast that with today. Uh, We have organized cybercrime. We have Mm -hmm. ransomware. We have cyber stalking, right? Yeah. So, you know, I'm still having a hard time now being lauded as, uh, or or having a hard time with CDC being lauded as white hats by 
Joe Mann and, and, and even AT&T, which is surprising, <laughs> that was uh, when, sure. when we spent yeah. decades being dismissed or vilified as black hats and villains, yeah. right? So that that's also kind of strange. But. I mean, there was no even concept of, of white versus black hat. It was just hackers are bad. Yeah. And, and yeah. it's... I, I think that that's changed a lot now, as as you kind of alluded to with the idea of life hacks and, I'm, you know, we're hacking this or this this kind of hack. And that's great. I mean, like, unreservedly, that's great. I, I think, and and Misha, as you also say, kind of now we have, and you, you describe it as like, you know, cyber criminals or these or, or, or gangs and stuff like that. And, like, that's a much more accurate way to describe, <laughs> you know, these groups. Mm-hmm. It's like It's like, okay, maybe they are doing hacking. But that's, you know, but their identity or, you know, how to identify them is not they are, quote unquote, hackers. Like it's it's, you know, they have a goal in mind and that is to you know, either is usually to make money, I mean, or to achieve some sort of, you know, whether, if they're a nation state actor right. or something like that. I've been involved in, in computer security in one form or another since 1983, but it, it wasn't until about 1998 when you could actually get employed in computer mm. security, right? And and that's due in large part to the public perception of, of hackers and hacking then. And it's also why only a few people in my family are aware of my involvement in CDC or hacking at all. My parents do not know. Still. Um, I never told them they do not know, um, you know, mostly because it would be difficult to change the narrative in their heads, right? If I sat oh, them wow. down and told them this, hmm. I, it, it would be hard for me to convince them the value of what I was doing or that what I was doing had some kind of moral or ethical compass to it. Um, you it can't just give them the CDC it. book. <laughs> uh, maybe, maybe. I mean, yeah. it's like, you don't have to believe me, mom, take it from Joe, Joe men. <laughs> All right. Well, that's a, that's a great transition. Actually, that's a perfect segue because Misha, I want to talk to you about the, the, the kind of the moral aspects of this and the origin of the term hacktivism, which you, as you said, is something that you guys came up with. I think you in particular. Mm-hmm. Um, so what, what does it mean? What is the, what does the term hacktivism mean? You wrote a whole declaration about it. So like, what were some of the core principles there? And then I'm, I'm curious if, if, you know, that was, that declaration was written some time ago. If you were to update that today, would you change anything? Hmm. So to me, hacktivism is a, a policy of hacking, freaking, creating technology to achieve, achieve a, a, a political or a social goal um, in support of human rights. But it means, I think generally hacktivism means different things, different people. You know, since we coined it in the 90s, it's really taken on kind of a life of its own. It certainly has a, I would say, a geopolitical aspect now that it didn't then. Right. Um, and, and even within CDC, we have disagreements about what counts as hacktivism and what doesn't. Hmm. Some of us believe that denial of service and web defacements can be a permissible kind of civil disobedience. Hmm. Others in CDC don't. So, you know, I, I can only tell you what, what I think hacktivism is. Luke, you know, you, you, you probably have some, uh, some thoughts on this as well. I think, you know, as Misha sort of uh, alluded to, there are different, you know, it's, it's not like there's a hard and fast encompassing definition. Um, I would say, so the, the sort of the declaration, the hacktivism declaration was an attempt by CDC to, to put something out there that would kind of flesh out this sort of idea and what this, what this, the concept was, but even, even then and ongoing, there are disagreements within the herd as to, you know, what is acceptable behavior and what is not, you know, for personally, I think that, uh, you know, I view the idea of, of a denial of service being 
uh, of a of a company's website or of a of a to to achieve an activist goal being no different than say chaining yourselves to the doors of a, mm-hmm. or chaining the doors shut or mm-hmm. something like that. I mean, I, I view it as a as a direct sort of you know, corollary, however, or analogy rather. But other people did not necessarily agree with that, and so it's you know we we're not a hive mind; we're a herd. <laughs> Well, like activism in general. I mean, define it, right? It's yeah. hard to do. Yeah. So in 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 you know in 1999, we we created an offshoot that we called Hacktivismo, and so this was a group that included uh, not just hackers but also lawyers and activists. And Oxblood Ruffin, who's a CDC member in particular, was kind of leading leading this effort, um, especially to develop tools designed to help dissidents in in repressive regimes avoid censorship and, and surveillance. Um, CDC is very much uh, has always been about the free flow of information. I mean, you know, at heart, we are publishers. <clears throat> We've been bu- publishing things yeah. since 1984, so the free flow of information is something very near and dear to all of us. Um, and ha- so hacktivism, uh, hacktivismo rather, uh, came out with a bunch of different software. Um, they, they created Peekabooty, um, which, which allowed people to bypass some national firewalls back then. So sort of a predecessor to Tor. Some of the same yeah, people exactly, who, exactly. Yeah, who yeah, started yeah. Tor came out of the, the activismo movement. Mm-hmm. Uh, Camera Shy um, was a, a steganographic application that allowed people to hide you know, content within other content. Hacktivismo uh, created like one of the first secure instant messaging clients um, called ScatterChat. So you know, Hacktivismo was, was I, I think, was very successful. Um, and drew together a you know a group of people who who weren't just hackers. Uh, I think, but oh, go, I, I just want I just wanted to add like uh, it ties into something else because one of the things you mentioned is like including lawyers. And one of the people that was in, involved with activismo was Patrick Ball, who's a mm-hmm. human rights uh, human right. I think he's a lawyer, but he's certainly a human rights activist. But um, and we we hosted him. We actually did a, a human rights panel, like ha- hackers and human rights at at DefCon, and I think. 2000 or maybe 2001 mm-hmm. but uh the interesting thing is like patrick ball was is he's a real human rights lawyer like a real um and so he was actually called as a witness when slobodan milosevic the serbian dictator was on trial at the hague um right, yeah. he patrick ball was called to testify and slobodan milosevic is representing himself and in court, you know, he stands up, he's like, you know, so Mr. Ball, tell me more about this dead cow cult that you are part of. <laughs> and like, and I remember us seeing that and be like, okay, that's really freaking weird. There's a, there's know, video of that too, right? Yeah, there is. Yeah. There's yeah, video. Yeah. And yeah, it's, yeah. it was all recorded and it's, but it was this sort of freaky, like, okay, this club that we're in effectively has you know has entered into the the real world in a way that we did not foresee like there's one thing it's like oh okay you know other people in computers know about us and stuff not in the like, our name is in the mouth of a genocidal dictator <laughs> right um, yeah you, you you know you've arrived as a hacktivist group when you're <laughs> name checked in a war crimes tribunal yeah yeah <laughs> <laughs> But um, yeah. so go, going back to, to hacktivismo, so you know they, they they released a bunch of, of really good software, um, you know, and in, in at least one case they influenced you know, Tor probably. But I, I think hacktivismo was kind of also the way that that Oxblood and and um, uh, other members of CDC tried to you know put some guardrails mm-hmm. around hacktivism to kind of define it, and that was around the time that that. 
CDC proclaimed that, you know, to us, hacktivism includes support for the UN Declaration on Human Rights. So, you know, in that declaration, uh, the United Nations says that, you know, access to information, access to speech, access to privacy, these are all guaranteed human rights, right? And so this, you know, ties really well with, with you know, CDC being an, an organization that believes in the free flow of information, right? So, you know, hacktivism was able to you know, I think refine kind of the definition of hacktivism, at least to us, right? And so that's why I say that, you know, it, it's a, a, a policy of hacking or, or creating technology that, that achieves a, a political or social goal, but in support of human rights, right? Uh, access to information being one of those. Yeah, I, I mean, when we, I, I read the declaration and, and it was, I thought it was interesting that it called out those specific, you know, national kind of human rights, no, not treaties is the wrong word, but it's, well, yeah, it's 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 almost a treat. It has not been ratified by yeah. by many countries. I think there are a few that, that have ratified it. I, as far as I know, the United States has not ratified it. Agreements. I mean, yeah, agreements. Yeah, yeah, yeah that's probably, okay. Thank you. That's probably a good word for it. But it, but it really called that out. And in and in contrast, you guys have definitely also called out other groups that have like actually taking part in cyber war, cyber warfare. Yeah, like, um, yeah, you know, yeah. Talk a little bit about some of the some of that. Yeah, yeah. So you know, I I. I to me, one of the most consequential things that, that we've ever done as an activist group is that we, we intervene to prevent a cyber war. So in, in 1998, an activist group called Legions of the Underground, LOU, declared war against cyber war against Iraq and, and China and planned on disabling internet access to those countries in retaliation for, for what, the, you know, for, for human rights abuses there. That was, that was their reason. Um, and, you know, we opposed this for, for numerous reasons. Um, you know, in, in the hacktivism that we practice, as I said, we support the UN's Universal Declaration on Human Rights, you know, which says you have access to, to information, you know, and, and to, 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 to quote, uh, Reed Fleming from Cult of Dead Cow, um, you know, he said, one cannot legitimately hope to improve a nation's free access to information by working to disable its data networks, right? So CDC assembled an international coalition of hacker groups and publications uh, like 2600 Magazine, Chaos Computer Club, HISPA Hack, Loft, and others. And we issued a joint statement to explain why we thought this was dangerous and wrongheaded and, and made it clear that if LOU went through with their plan, they would be pariahs. And it worked. It worked. LOU kind of called off their action. They, they, didn't, they didn't attack Iraq or China. And then, so fast forward to 2012, Luke, Reed, Fleming, and I are on a panel at one of the premieres of Brian Knappenberger's documentary, We Are Legion, which is about um, hacktivism and specifically about anonymous, mostly, mostly about anonymous. So after the panel was over, a member of LOU came up to us who was in the audience, coincidentally in the audience, hmm. and he thanked us. He said, you saved my life. Wow. He said, you know, I'm married, I have a family, I have a job hmm. now. You know, there was disagreement within LOU about whether we should do this or not. At the time, you know, the, the go ahead and do it argument was winning. When you guys put out that, that joint statement, it helped some of us win the argument within LOU. And, you know, I, I'm, he said, he said specifically to us, if, if we had done that, I think I would be in prison. Hmm. Um, you know, I, I wouldn't have the life that I have now. And so I, that was just, uh, an amazing experience to, to have, to have so that kind of feedback to sort of see about, you know, what was going on behind the other side of the screen and, and for somebody to come up and, and, you know, uh, 
tell us about this impact that, that we had made on. And it must have been really validating, right? I mean, for, yeah, for the positions you guys had taken. And I, that, that's fantastic. That's a really cool story. Wow. Okay. So we're, we're running out of time, but I had so many other questions we didn't even get a chance to get to. But I, before we get out of here, I wanted to lighten things up a little bit and, and ask. I, I, my theory is that there are people listening to this right now who have latent hacker tendencies that don't know it. And so I, what I'd be curious to know before we quit is what are some hacker tendencies that we might have that you think some tendencies we might have that 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 might mean we're hackers. Like we, we, I was actually thinking in the Jeff Foxworthy, I was saying like you might be a redneck if, like you might be a hacker if that you might not think about. But I think there are people out there that that might have some of these proclivities. So, like for instance, myself. I mean, looking back, I didn't really grok this as a kid, but I mean, I used to take all my electronics toys apart and and I put them back together in different ways and find new ways to make them work and do other things. And to me, that was, that was hacking. That was that, that was the curiosity, the, the tinkerer in me that first led me to electrical engineering as a degree and then onto, uh, onto software. And yet I still missed the, the true hacker boat uh, that you guys were in. But so looking back at, at yourselves, maybe and some of your own experiences, and then obviously the people that you've, you know, rubbed elbows with over the years, what were some personality traits or, or things that might lead you to believe that you that you might be interested in this as a, as something you um, want to do. Almost every hacker that I've come across has had at least a passing organic interest in lock picking. Yeah, right. <laughs> I that did. is an amazing. All the hacker cons have have lock pick villages. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you know, I think even more interesting that you know, so now you can go to DefCon right, and there's a, a lock picking village, and you can get exposed to it there. But you know, before say DefCon. It, it was interesting to me to realize that um, in isolation, people that I was meeting who were hackers were also interested in lockpicking, had also hmm. managed to get a lockpick set because it's it, it's difficult in some states. In fact, in some states, it's illegal to have a lockpicking set. And it, it was just, and, and this is sort of an organic interest in, you know, uh, I mean, it's literally, you have a door in front of you that's locked that you want to get through, right? Which is it's sort of an, an analogy for, for hacking, right? There's some mm -hmm. kind of challenge in front of you and you have to figure out how to, how to unlock that. Right. And so lock, lock picking is something that, that I have seen a, a lot of people occupied with social engineering I, is another one. So there are some people who have, who are really, really gifted in social engineering and being able to sort of win your confidence um, over the telephone or even in person. Right. Um, and, and sort of get you to do something or get you to believe something that you otherwise wouldn't. Um, and you know, that, that to, to me, that's a kind of like relationship hacking, um, mm. or, or personal, uh, personality hacking. Um, I, I always, I always say that, you know, for me at its, at its like highest level at the, the, or, or at its lowest level, the most basic level hackers are people who take a system and manipulate it somehow to do things that it was not intended to do. Mm -hmm. And so that could be a computer system. It could be, uh, you know, a locked door. It could be a somebody that you're calling on the phone to try to get them to do something. It could be a political system. You know, it's, mm -hmm. it's, you know, it could be a human system, a technological system, what have you. It's so for me, yes, we are computer hackers, but not all hackers are computer hackers. And, yes. and also it's, it's a mindset that is not, it's not even a modern one. I would say, you know, the example I always use is that I think of like Benjamin, ha Benjamin Franklin was a hacker. Nikola Tesla was a hacker. Mm -hmm. you know, people who basically um, looked at the world around them and they're like, okay, 
what makes this tick? How can it, you know, how can I make it do different things, et cetera? And, and that's a, at the most fundamental level, that's, that's how, how I see it. I think that, you know, talking about things that may indicate that, you know, that you're one of those people, you know, Misha talked about social engineering and also lock picking and, and you'd spoken about like taking things apart. Um, I have a friend who always described hackers as people who, who take things apart and put them back together better. Hmm. But, more fundamentally, I think it's that kind of curiosity of mm-hmm. like, how do things work? Why do they work? And and then trying to apply that to the the world that they interact with. Can this work differently? That that's another one. Yeah. I, I think yeah. I think the hacker mindset you you ask questions whereas that that other people take for granted. Yeah. And, and, right. And if and if you if you bothered to ask some of these questions, you you would stumble onto things, right? But I think in in you know, even speaking for myself, I often have a failure of imagination about things, right? And then that, uh, then that other people don't. They ask questions about some field that, that I don't know as well about, and they're able to make more progress because they don't take things for granted that I'm taking for granted. Yeah. I think, I mean, ha- hackers are at, you know, at a basic level, they are driven by curiosity. Mm-hmm. Right. And I saw... Um, and so I think they, they ask questions. They ask why a lot more than other people do. And I think yeah. that... I, I think that hackers question authority too, and that, and, I, and yep. not resist authority necessarily, though it may look that way. I think a lot of people associate hackers with anarchists and 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 anarchy, and and I, and I think there certainly is a thread there that we that you yeah. guys could talk to. But I think a lot of it's just questioning authority. It's like, what do you mean I can't do that? Why can't I do that? No, no, yeah. why? Yeah, and it, <laughs> I think you know it's probably was. I mean, I, I'm sure it was extremely frustrating for our parents in a lot of cases. <laughs> but this sort of like. Very much a like, I have to understand why you want me to do something or want me to not do something. Exactly. Not you know just because I say so is not good enough. Yes. And I, as I say, frustrating for parents, but that's you know that's the way it is. To, uh, to turn that on its head a little bit, some of the success that you can get through social engineering is through um, what's called the appeal to authority, right? So in this case, you take you take a, a hacker who sort of weaponizes how people respond to authority in order to get them to do certain things, right? So like if I call you on the phone and I make you think that I'm from the phone company, right? Then you grant me a certain uh, uh, authority about, you know, what you think phone company people should should know Mm -hmm. or do or be able to ask, for instance, right? Right. Me and my girlfriend in college at the time got into Farm Aid. I'm from Indiana. So uh, we, Farm Aid was in Indiana. A big concert with a lot of names. And we managed, because she was a, a writer at the college newspaper, she got a press badge, which is like the lowest possible level badge. There's multiple levels of badges to get in. And we were in the, the green room and we're, of course, we're not to leave. She somehow got me one of these two. And uh, we're like, that's backstage, like right over there. And we realized that all the badges were colored, but they were only on one side. So uh, we flipped our badges over. And as you said, just we walked in like we own the place. Yeah, you know, look confident. Look confident. Walk yeah. right by with their back, you know, just talking to each other. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, we're walking to back. And we just walked right. We just walked right up. And it was the kind of the appeal to the authority. You just pretend like we belong there and no one questioned us. That's a pretty typical story. Also talking about, you know, something we didn't talk about with hackers and, and freakers is that physical aspect of going dumpster diving, like going like going be, behind the the phone central office or later on, you know, cell phones, cell phone shops or computer places or whatever and seeing what they throw away. And, you know, especially, I mean, probably still, but well, less so now because 
things aren't so physical media based, but you know, you would find hard drives, you would find entire computers, <laughs> you would find documents that might have confidential things that, that will help you learn about their systems, et cetera, et cetera. And so in many cases, in order to get access to these, you know, where these things are, it is just like looking confident, you know, maybe put on a hard hat and a high vis vest yep. or yep. carry a clipboard, you know, all this sort of stuff that, that, you know, can get you so that you could <laughs> sometimes acquire things illegally that you're not meant to have. Mm. Um, but yeah, just you, you won't get questioned if you look like you belong kind of a thing. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I think it's you know, two kind of two sides of the same coin, you know, questioning authority, but also realizing that you can weaponize it in certain ways. Yeah. And I, I do, I do think that, you know, I was speaking to, to Misha about this last night, but I, you know, I want to draw a line, uh, a distinction between the sort of like questioning authority and sort of a knee jerk contrarianism, mm -hmm. because there is this sort of like, yeah, I want to know why, but it's not just like, oh, I'm just going to dig in my heels. And especially I'm not going to dig in my heels and ignore actual evidence. Like if you give me a real reason, like, okay, I'm that that's, that's, that's good for me. I'm not going to be like, no, this is this grand conspiracy um, by lizard people from space <laughs> um, to, to make us get vaccinated with 5g chips that are going <laughs> to make Bill Gates control us or what have you. Oh, that's a whole other podcast. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> okay. Uh, before we go, one last question. And that is, there's so many horrible portrayals of, of hackers in pop, in pop culture, particularly in movies and books. Um, so I'm curious, uh, do you guys have any recommendations? Like if you're going to recommend a movie like, okay, that that is an accurate portrayal of what I consider to be hacking and hackers. You know, I think what we could actually do, I don't know whether this, your format allows for this, but this is the kind of thing, you know, we could work up like a, a reading list or a, oh, sure. you know, a, a, a suggested sources. Cause oh, I've got show notes. Of, I'll put them all on the show notes. Oh, great. Great. I mean, cause there's everything from like the movie sneakers, mm -hmm. you know, which is, a, mm -hmm. which is a great portrayal. I think we actually, you know, saw it relatively recently and I'm amazed by how well it, it holds yeah, me up. Too. Yep. Like you could, you could reshoot it with almost exactly the same script, like without really needing to, to update almost anything and it would hold up uh, even 25 years later um, to older things like uh, uh, the movie, the conversation with Gene Hackman, mm -hmm. um, which is, you know, sort of like a, a proto hacker thing. We, we yeah. talked about war games a little bit, yeah, war games. Um, you know, which is obviously, you know, a sensationalized view, but I, I would add documentaries. There's a bunch of documentaries yeah. mm -hmm. that, that we could, that we could name. We could yeah. put Go ahead. Talked about unauthorized notes, access and freedom yeah. downtime. Yeah. And so, but you're, you're literally seeing people who are either hackers or practicing hacking, right? As opposed to this cinematic version of it or yeah. what, what a screenwriter thinks, thinks it is. Um, uh, although I would say the the one fiction depiction, fiction depiction that I feel like is the most accurate or the least inaccurate would be Mr. Robot. Especially the first. I was going to ask you about mm -hmm. that. Yeah, Jeff yeah. Moss actually was a consultant on that, right? What, was he? I know. I know that um, Cyber Junkie, who's the his head of the goons for Defcon and has been for decades, um, was was the his Mark Rogers was the named consultant for season two, and it, he told us all these stories about like things where there's you know they they build a, a a cell phone in the show. There's like a you know a cell phone interceptor box, and he talked about that he. He, that was a real thing that he built for them. And there's mm -hmm. another thing where, where Mr. R you know, where the Rami runs Malik. a, yeah, Rami Malik runs a, a, an exploit script. And that was a legit exploit script that like, that Mark had, had basically built just for the show. Like, uh, and that's, 
I can't think of another case. Like before that, it would be a big deal if they're like, oh, they're actually using NMAP or, oh, that's actually SSH like, as right, opposed in, to just a sort of like graphical thing. Yeah, yeah. yeah. As a graphical, like, you know, cracking, cracking kind of thing. But that was the first show to some, you know, obviously they had to make it more exciting because right. nobody wants to watch a movie, of, <laughs> you know, sitting around for 18 hours, not sleeping and surviving on jolt and pizza. But, um, you know, they did a pretty good job with that. How about books, Misha? Do you have any books that you recommend? Oh, um, I think Hacker Crackdown by Bruce Sterling mm. is probably one of the best that I've that I've read. It it, it came out um, in the early 90s. What's that? 90, I think 93 or 94. Yeah, it's about the it's about Operation, Operation Sun Devil, Sun Devil in 92. Yeah, yeah. Which, you know, we probably don't have time to get into, but... I, I think a, that's a, a a really really good book, fascinating. Um, you and and it, it tells you a lot about um, the hacker wars, uh, Legion of uh, of Doom, uh, Masters hmm. of Deception, some of those things that were going oh, on then. Um, hacker Crackdown also sort of like marks a sea change in hacker culture because you know you, you we Operation Sun Devil specifically like it kind of broke down a lot of these open lines of communication where it's like, Oh, part of the, the early hacker ethic was like, you learn stuff and you share it with all, mm-hmm. you know, everybody else who wants it. And then that was that, that thing was essentially weaponized by the, the feds to, to, mm-hmm. to, to, to gather put people in jail. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Um, yeah. Well, Joe Men's uh, book. <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah. Plug for sure. For Joe Men's book. I, th- I, th- you know, uh, d- despite that I'm in the book and Luke's in the book, I think it is really well written. And I, you know, it's easy when you're writing about this. So much of hacking is hard to depict mm. and hard to explain. Um, so it, it's really easy for an author to get in, to make a lot of mistakes about how they depict this or to make it so technical that you lose the audience mm-hmm, um, sure. or so generic that it doesn't even make sense. Um, right. I, I think Joe did a really good job. I think Bruce Sterling did a really good job in talking about, you know, the, 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 the technical things about, how, you know, what, what is this happening when you're looking at this screen and why does it happen that way? What about, uh, I was going to say cuckoo's egg. Mm. That's close stole. Yeah. Stoles. Yeah. yeah. That's yeah. great. And that book. was certainly a big one that we were reading. You know, at the mm-hmm. time in the you know in the late eighties, that it was like this, this you know, because it, it was the book about hackers, right? Yeah. And, and his yeah. obsession with figuring out how these systems work, I and mean, that that, yeah. that yeah. also kind of represented the hacker mindset too. He was yeah, bound to determine to figure out how all that stuff worked. It's it's so it's a, it's it's kind of it's 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 really an interesting um, computer forensic story, it's right? Really what it is, yeah, yeah. There's a you because you, you talked a little about like the hacker the hacker wars the so called hacker wars, but there was one that came out in the mid nineties, late nineties, uh, masters of deception. Um, I think the Quitners wrote it and I would not really say it's a good book. It like, there's a lot of stuff that it just kind of gets wrong, but it is, you know, it is interesting. It's, you know, it's, it's a depiction of a, of that sort of early nineties hacker scene, et cetera, that, that was, a you know, sort of us coming into our own in mm-hmm. at the, as the, things started to shift from BBSs and things like that over to the internet. Mm-hmm. And all of a sudden you could be dealing with systems and people literally all over the world without yeah. having to call them directly yeah. from yeah. your parents' basement. Yeah. <laughs> and, and shifting from landlines to cellular, lots yeah. of different changes. There. Oh yeah. yeah. All right. Well, Misha, Luke, this has been fantastic. We could go on for hours and hours, I know, but thank you for coming on the show and sharing your, uh, your history with us and your thoughts. I really, really appreciate it. 
Yeah. Thanks for having no problem. us. Hopefully you got stuff that, that was interesting to you and, and your listeners. Absolutely. Oh man, that was fun. I had such a good time talking with Luke and Misha. That was, that was great. I cannot wait to bring them back on the show. Hopefully we'll get some other folks from CDC or loft on the show at some point too. That's, that's just so fun. I hope you enjoyed it too. I know it's very hacker centric and I know it's maybe for some of you that are not old enough to remember some of the things we were going through. It might seem like a bunch of old guys talking about the old days and I used to have to walk to school uphill both ways, but it was, I just find it absolutely fascinating. I'm really hoping to see Luke and Misha in Vegas when I'm there. I know they're going to be there. And uh, if I'm really lucky, maybe I'll get to meet some other folks from CDC or Loft or uh, other groups like Root. I'm hoping that's going to be the case. We shall see. Now, I did chat with the guys after the show, and they put together a little Google worksheet with some of their suggested reading and viewing lists. Now, I'm not going to share their link directly with you guys, but I made a copy of what they had put in there so far and put it in a sheet of my own, and I will share that. If you want to find that, you can go to fdsd.me slash list. And as they update their list, uh, I will try to periodically come and update my copy of that list. But it's got a list of TV shows and books and movies that they recommend, you know, ones that are either meaningful to them or the way I asked the question originally, which, you know, is what pop culture references like these actually do a good job of representing hackers and hacking. So that was kind of the flavor, though. I don't necessarily think that's behind all of their recommendations. So anyway, check that out if you are interested. Now for the patrons, I got a whole bunch more from these guys. We kept talking and talking and talking. I probably got another, I don't know, 30, 40 minutes of chatting with these guys uh, for the patron bonus stuff that'll come out on Thursday. As usual, we talk about the history of some of the hacker conferences like SummerCon and HoHoCon and PumpCon, what it was like to go to cons back in those days. Cause you know, DEF CON's like, I don't know, 30,000 plus people. And in the old days, it was a few dozen. And the vibe was very, very different. I mean, a lot of it because it was so much smaller, but it was just, it was just different. So I thought it was very interesting to get to get their perspective on that because they were, they were there. They went to a lot of these back in the day. We also talk about who it was that invented LeetSpeak. And LeetSpeak, if you've ever seen it, this is where uh, hackers oftentimes replace some English letters with numbers in words that they make, like in Loft, L0PHT. But in this case, it was Elite. And it was, quote, unquote, spelled 31337. So the threes being E's, the one being L, and the seven being a T. So, and it's not even, so in that sense, it's not even spelled right either. But, you know, that this is the artistic license uh, used by the hackers. So anyway, the cult of the dead cow is actually credited with creating that word. They, as we've already talked about, they are credited with creating the term hacktivism. They have an interesting story about an agent steal. We talk about their decision to actually reveal their real names uh, in the Cult of the Dead Cow book. That was a significant decision that they had to make. We talk of probably, arguably anyway, the most famous member of CDC, which you may or may not know is Beto O'Rourke, the Texas politician. We find out how one becomes a member of the CDC and talk a lot about how you don't have to be a hacker to be in the Cult of the Dead Cow. In fact, many of the folks in CDC are not primarily hackers at all. We also get into the history of the Loft, which a lot of people think of as another hacker group like CDC or Masters of Deception or Legion of Doom. But originally, Loft was actually a Loft, L-O-F-T. It was a hacker space. 
And there's a really kind of interesting nuanced story behind that. So we that's just some of what we get into in the patron bonus content, which will come out on Thursday. So speaking of which, talking about patrons, I've got one of my Dragon Challenge Coin promotions going on right now. If you'd like to get one of my super cool security enhancing challenge coins, now is a great time to become a patron. You can go to fdsd.me slash promo 823, as in August of 2023, or just go to firewalls.dragons.com and look for the most recent article about challenge coins, and you'll find all the information there. I'm doing this through the end of August. And if you happen to already have one of these puppies in your possession and you will be in Las Vegas, Nevada, you know, maybe we could find each other and you can slap that puppy on the, on the table and I'll buy you a drink. Similarly, if you have some Firewalls Don't Stop Dragons merch, if you're wearing some swag and I see you, I will definitely walk up and introduce myself to you. You can get your merch at fdsd.me slash merch. Also looking to see if I see anybody sporting one of my Amulet of Entropy Indie Badges. Okay, so I am in Vegas as you hear this right now. And so what I'm hoping to do is capture some of the sounds, some of the experiences from uh, Hacker Summer Camp and bring them to you in the next version of the podcast. I probably won't be doing a new show as normal. I'm going to be doing a DEF CON special, which I, at this point, I'm doing every year. And there usually is big security news uh, at DEF CON. So maybe some, maybe what I'll be doing is bringing some of those stories. I'm going to try to record and edit this on my laptop while I am in Vegas and still try to get it out on time on Monday morning. However, there's a more than even chance that that will not happen. So I may end up just gathering all the raw footage, I guess, or audio clips, uh, and then editing it once I get home. So it may not come out until Monday night or even Tuesday. So just FYI, next Monday show might be delayed a little bit. All right, that's going to do it for this week. Take care, everybody. Stay safe out there. Hope to see some of you in Vegas, including some of my patrons. And until next week, as always, don't get caught with your drawbridge down.